Hi, Jeff. <clears throat> hey, Rick. It's clearly hot where you are. Oh. <laughs> How are you doing pretty, today? Pretty, pretty good. Hey, Robert. Hello. Trying to start the video. Here I am. Cool. Good to see you. <laughs> hey, Brandon. Hello. How are you doing today? Sticky. Sticky. Just got back from a walk. It's humid here, man. Oh, uh, yeah. I was at a restaurant last night that was humid, and I'm like, Ew, why is it so hot and sticky in this restaurant? Don't like it. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> complain about the fifth season. This is our fifth season. Exactly. Well, I'm imagining Hoy's going to be joining us. Um, he does usually, but he also hasn't responded to my text this morning, so I don't really know what's going on. But I guess we'll find out. But I guess we can also go ahead and get started without him. So, um, oh, also quick thing, um, would the three of you be okay if this ends up becoming something that we release on the mainstream? Sure. Yeah. Yeah. Brandon. Yeah, that sounds fine. All right. So we can go ahead and get started. So, um, today we are discussing NK Jemison's the fifth season, Rick, which version of the book are you working with? So we're probably all working with the same version which is the Hachette, I don't know, publishing Orbit Books version. And it's got a fantastic map in the inner sleeve, which I'll show the camera. It shows the continent and the rifts and so on, the various travels that they go on. And it also has a fantastic, it's got two appendices. One is essentially all her Hygaxian words and words she's used throughout whether they're English or proper nouns, and another one goes to the various seasons or described as though it's actually part of a document that existed. So it's quite a nice little book. And I only actually got halfway through and then I had to switch to Audible because for some reason I thought we were meeting next week, not this week. So I had to rapidly speed things up. And I forget somebody else here ended up, was it you, Robert, who emailed saying that you'd finished this like a month ago or something? Yeah, yeah, I started it early and uh, sped right through it. So nice. Is anybody working with a version of the book that's different than what we're Chris just describing? No, library copy as well. Yeah. So. And Hoy just joined. Hoy, are you working with the same edition, the same version? Hoy doesn't have audio. And actually, that the designer, Lauren. Panapinto is actually quite famous for designing a lot of science fiction fantasy yeah. books. I'm working with the ebook of the same version. Okay, cool. Yeah, yeah. Uh, which I confess I am in the final stretches, but such is life. <laughs> and Hoy, did you see my text message? I did, yes. Is that okay? Yep, not a problem. Okay, I'll let her know. Yeah. Cool. Um, or I should say, I just saw your text message. So, okay, great. Yeah. Um, all right. And uh, Hoy, I was also chatting with the guys here and saying that we're probably going to end up releasing this one to the mainstream as well. Oh, great. Okay. Superstars. So, what's that? Superstars. <laughs> exactly. Yay. Your names will be in lights. <laughs> <laughs> Does anybody have any Hygaxian nominees? Lots. <laughs> I think for me, I mean, I've got a few, but I think Orogeny has to be the one which is a study of the flow of rocks and so on. And I love the fact that as the different orogenes are reaching into the ground and feeling their way around the rock strata, that it seemed a lot more like 
erogeny as opposed to orogeny as well, like finding the rocks erogenous zones, like there's some kind of almost sexual or tangible aspect to it. So even though the word is orogeny with an O, I felt it was used in a lot of places like it was the word erogeny with an E. Clever. I like that. And it didn't even occur to me that that was a real word. Uh, so yeah, it's a, that, that, that seems like that's a really good uh, option. Because the ones I had come up with was, um, she used the word gelid a few times, or is it gelid? Gelid, gelid. Uh, and then there's also keloid was mentioned a few times. But orogeny is a, a, clearly if that's a real word, that seems like that's a very strong option. Uh, Robert? No, I I did not think that was a real word either. I think that would have been my pick. That's That's one that just keeps coming through the book the whole time. Brandon? Uh, well, just for a personal high gaxian word, probably be all the all your semi-precious stones that they mentioned. Um, I don't even know. Chalcedony? Chalcedony. Amber, garnet, because I think, you know, AD&D was a little obsessed with, you know, treasure, but not making your treasure too good. Right. <laughs> semi-precious right. stones, and that's where I came across all those words. Right, that table out. in the DMG. That's right. Um, and I feel like that, if you go to any um, private Montessori kindergarten right now, meet a Chalcedony and an Amber and a Garnet. Yeah. Because of Steven Universe. <laughs> there you go. Okay. Um, and you know, cyanide and is actually a real stone. Exactly. Yeah, that was a one well. good choice. And then the fact that um, who is her guardian kind of explains what cyanide, why, it's, why it was a good choice that she picked right. that word. So that, that's a good one. But I, I definitely agree that orogeny would be the one that sort of stands out. Um, Conversely, I was kind of annoyed by the um, the made up contractions like so midlats and and comms. I'm like, maybe, yeah, Sesson, maybe it's supposed to represent um, a con- you know because I'm obviously not in a society that's speaking English. So what you know, maybe it's might represent that kind of contraction in there. But it just seems like seems kind of a little YA to me. You know, seems a little Hunger Games. <laughs> you know? I so. liked Dead Civ though. I thought Dead Civ was cool. Dead Civ was good. Yeah. I kind of dug the vibe around that. Yeah. But um, yeah, so let's go ahead and chat about kind of our overall feelings about what we read. Uh, Brandon, what did you think about N.K. Jemison's The Fifth Season? Uh, I liked it. It was, um, it was a, kind of a different experience for uh, Appendix N. I, um, I was reading along and thinking like, what? It feels different. I think just because it's such a contemporary novel. Um, where a lot of, I mean, I haven't been here for every one of our installments, but, you know, a lot of it is stuff from the 30s or, you know, you know kind of early 20th century. And this is definitely like a contemporary novel. We have all of your structures. We have your rising action and falling action. And, you know, we have conventions like cutting on action and cliffhangers at the end of chapters and uh, multiple points of view. And it just it felt a lot different. Like it, it was a page turner. It was totally readable. Um, but it is for me, one that's set apart from the rest of the appendix. Mm-hmm. How about you, Robert? Well, uh, the first time I tried to read this was, I believe it was when it, uh, won the Hugo okay. or, or maybe it won both, uh, Nebula and Hugo. I can't remember. And I I didn't make it very far. I remember I returned it to the library 
And uh, when this came back up again, and it was the choice for the book club, I said, okay, I need to try this again. And of course, uh, the next three books in the trilogy also won the awards as well, which is extremely unusual. So, uh, and this time I definitely made it through. I think I wasn't as um, critical, uh, but I have to say that I had a similar response and that the beginning just was really hard for me to grasp. What am I reading here? What is this story? And and it wasn't until I got through, I think, uh, a couple of chapters that I, it really hooked me in. And then it was just like a, a thriller almost, you know, you just blaze right through. And um, so, yeah, I love the story in the end. And I was very tempted just to read the next two, but I got other things to read. So I'm holding off for now. Uh but uh, yeah, so I'll leave it to everyone else now. Rick, what'd you think? So like Robert, I found it harder to get into, but once I got into it, I thought it was great exploring the different sort of world building around rocks and rock structures and orogeny, like the flow and folds of rocks and stratas of rocks. I thought that was a nice way to look at it differently because there's been so much fantasy, especially post Lord of the Rings, that's swords and sorcery, medieval world, dragons, lots of, you know, fighting and so on and spell casting. And this was a bit like Ursula K. Le Guin's Earthsea, a nice way to relook at magic and do it in a different way. Cause it seems to be the only magic in this world. I could be wrong. And again, maybe there's more in the subsequent two books. So I, I thought it was very, very good. It was very different and kind of tying into what Brandon was saying, it felt very modern in the same way that Fledgling felt very modern. And if I didn't know there were two different authors, I would have actually felt there was a kind of tonal resonance that they could have been the same author. Almost the feeling that I felt inside as I went through both books, just in, in the, how the language was used, not necessarily in the actual stories. Mm -hmm. And Dan Alexander wanted to join us, but wasn't able to, but he did email in his thoughts. And um, and I, I asked him if it'd be all right if I shared it. And he said, sure. So I'll go ahead and share with you guys what Dan Alexander says. Dan says, hi, Jeff and Hoy. I'm sad not to join you for the fifth season, but I was excited to read the book and wanted to share my thoughts, which are very much in vain of Statler and Waldorf. I was cheering at the beginning and if not booing, certainly disappointed by the end. TLDR starts well, runs out of ideas, joyless and undemanding, no sequels for me. Hygaxian word, vesicle, page 351, a small cavity in a mineral or rock. I enjoyed the first 150 pages or so, the fluent pose, three, uh, three strands with intriguing setups, the second person narrative, the novel society, refreshing diversity and distinctive landscape. But the idea slowed down and it became a ticking clock of structure, mysteries and resolutions. The subtext is spelt out, page 348, all roggers are slaves, 354, we aren't human, yes, we are, couldn't be more on the nose. I generally find the more you put into a book, the more you get out. I'm just not accustomed to undemanding books. This lacks either the wildness and humor or the grandeur and arresting images of most Appendix N books. It is easy to read, but joyless. It doesn't make demands on the reader. It reads as a young adult dystopian story, readable, obvious, and earnest. It's perhaps an unfair comparison, but it's a long way short of the Earthsea novels. 
Have a great discussion and see you at the warm Ouroboros. Cheers, Dan. Um, Hoy, what are your thoughts about N.K. Jemison's The Fifth? Right. Well, I think everything that everyone has said has resonated with me in different ways. I don't think... Um, I think I came to very similar... I had very similar thoughts that Dan had, but in the opposite direction, I felt like the beginning, like most of you who are here in the chat, was the hard part, and that towards the end, it got easier. Mm-hmm. Um, I always have heard in prose writing workshops why oh you know you shouldn't do second person and second person was really tough for me i really did not like any of the second person stuff until they were well into the story maybe when when she met um who's the uh trans scientist um talkie that's when i sort of enjoyed started enjoying those second person sections um but before that i did not um and i was also wondering like dan it did, and I did mention that I, very just now. The word YA it did feel very much of like that mid aughts YA fiction dystopias, um, although more grand. I mean, Hunger Games is very contained. This is you know these obelisks floating in the sky. That felt very you know dying Earth, very Jack Vance. Uh, so I, I appreciated that. So I, I wouldn't say that. Uh, I think maybe Dan's referring to the scope of the story, but the imagery there is grandeur in this story. So. And I was wondering, you know, again, with some of these coined words and whether I was like, I was initially kind of annoyed. And I was wondering, though, if I was being unfair, because obviously there's a lot of coined or unusual words in Tolkien or Clark Ashton Smith. And so maybe I was just being unfair in comparing something that I was unfamiliar with to something that I was familiar with. Um, on, on that note, I'm sorry to interrupt. No, no, absolutely. I think that's basically what I have to say. So as I was reading, um, I was thinking kind of the same thing. And then I was wondering if her um, use of like, you know, her new jargon plus contemporary idioms like the art scene and, um, you know, using yeah, nah, kind of slang was felt out of place simply because it isn't. What am I trying to say? I, I guess I'm feeling like the pulps and the weird tales authors may have been using idiom from their time, but that's all kind of been folded into our understanding of what fantasy is. So that's almost like a preset vocabulary that if you want to write high fantasy, you use. Right. But in her case, she's decided to kind of go her own way and she's going to she's going to go ahead and use contemporary idioms and slang. Right. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I didn't even so much mind the contemporary idioms and slang in the dialogue. I, I just uh, when it's sort of more like the sort of world building phrases so mid lats again is the one that just like really just grates against my ear and right. the comms you know yeah, just say community What's yeah wrong exactly <laughs> i would say community you know quadrants i think that was kind of interesting because you know that these are sort of like you know these four and this one that stands above it and that just implies a whole level of layers in the social structure and i didn't mind like this mix of you know electricity and asphalt and um so it's a dying well not really dying earth but it's has similar veins to dying earth, but it's not at the very end. It's at a point when like society is sort of climbing up, but we know that there's these circulations where it can just fall again, just like the tectonic plates can just roll over each other. So I, I appreciate looking at it like at a slightly different high point. Um, also, did you guys catch that little bit about there is no moon and that it was destroyed? Yeah. Yeah. Somehow. Yeah. Yeah. So. Yeah. There um, were a couple of passages where they, they like, she goes into great detail about them looking at the sky. Yeah. And there's not, there's no moon mentioned. Yeah. Yeah. Um, Overall, I really enjoyed reading this. Um, It's not one of my favorites that we've read, but I had a, I had a really good time reading it. I thought it was very easy to read. Um, I agree. There was um, 
a bit more of a hump to get over in the beginning when um, I'm trying to kind of like suss out this world and figure out like what's going or suss out this world, perhaps I should <laughs> say, um, and uh, kind of figure out what's going on here. Um, I agree. The second person narrative part was um, was kind of awkward for me. I, I wasn't quite understanding why we were going into second person with this one particular character. And when we find out that all three characters are the same character, that didn't answer that question for me. It instead made it more confusing why we were doing that than not. I understand that the second person narrative is the one who we're, I guess, with in the present storyline. Um, but even so, if I'm talking about myself in the past, I would still be using the same, I would be using a different tense. I'd be using past tense instead of present tense, but I wouldn't go from um, a different person perspective while talking about myself in the past versus me now. Right. But that part I didn't completely get. And I'm sure N.K. Jemison has talked about this at length somewhere, um, why she chose to do that. But it, it was a little weird for me. Yeah. Um, I'm I mean, maybe it's a dissociative state that basically um, our three our three timeline character experiences, right? It's it's, it's her her dissociation from all this trauma. I see. Um, um, but I did want to actually uh, Dan's point that it was I also kind of kind of joyless, which I understand. That's the tone of the story that we're trying to tell. Um, but even in the darkest of times, people have black humor or something like that. And none of that ever came through too. So, but anyway, sorry, go ahead. And see, I don't agree with that. I don't agree with the, 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 the cr criticism that this book is joyless. Um, it's joyless in the sense that it is a dark story and there's not a lot of joy in the characters and they're experiencing a lot of trauma and the author isn't downplaying that. But I also think there's a lot of uh, humor and humanity in this story as well. I think of, um, I forget what the young Tonkey's name is when we first meet her but I feel like like their little interactions together as they're walking around the fulcrum. I thought there was a lot of humor and 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 humanity in those. Uh, Beanoff, Beanoff, yes. uh, yeah, yeah, uh, yeah, yeah. And there was uh, little I mean, nuggets of humor, yeah. such as when they're going through the the community that's dug into the tunnels, and the main character is talking about stuff in the different rooms, and she said, "And then I found this torture chamber. There's these two kind of rings hanging from the ceiling." Like it's clearly some kind of sex thing. And she's like, I just don't understand how you would torture somebody with those. Yeah, and I thought that like a, was like very funny. Yeah. And it was like a Pilates studio, which yeah. can be torture. Yeah. I mean, uh, to be fair, like I think the pirate community had a certain built-in, um, you know, uh, joie de vivre that is yeah. not present in some of the other communities. I was just thinking about that yesterday because I was walking around Bushwick yesterday and everybody was out in the streets you know, and in the parks and that like, it gave me that same kind of vibe, you know, like, you know, everyone's like corralling kids who, who may or may not be their own because it's just like, you know, 65 million kids and like three adults. <laughs> and, they're and I guess it depends on what Dan means by joyless. Cause I don't think it's any more or less joyless than the game of Thrones stories, for example. Like, I think it's, it's a dark story, but it's a dark story that still has funny moments and still has very human characters at its core. Yeah. Um, I mean, I don't think it's grim dark. I just think yeah. that there is no moments of sort of levity within the, the protagonists that, you it know, takes it, the it, trauma the characters are experiencing very seriously. Yeah. Yeah. Mm -hmm. There's not a lot of hope. You know, I, I never got the sense like, oh, everything is going to work out okay. They basically tell you in the start of the book, like, this is how the world ends. And it's repeated three times. 
and and then and it basically says, oh, well, yeah, the world ended a few times before, but this one, this is this is the end. This is it. So yeah. you're tipped off, like, okay, we're we're just going there. And uh there's she's not going to rescue everything at the end and everything's gonna be okay. So in that sense, I think that's that definitely makes it a, a kind of a bummer. If you if you believe that, then like why am I reading all these pages just to find out that things don't work out? So Right. I mean, certainly we don't know what happens in the next two novels, but I, I do like that it's not a savior narrative. It doesn't seem to be setting itself in, up in any way to be a savior narrative, right? And the, the one thing she actually does to attempt to save someone is the thing that gets her son killed by, like, you know, people, you know, her, her husband realizes that she's, <laughs> you know, this thing, right? You know? Yeah. So. Although I imagine in the next two books, we're going to find out that what, whatever happened there was a lot more complicated than- I'm sure. Yeah, I'm sure. Than we're currently allowed to believe. To Jeff's point about the feeling, the trauma of each character, before she became a full-time writer, um, Jemison was a counselor or therapist as well. So that's probably why it's so zeroed in on their experiences, like their point of view going through these things. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I was just reading that in her bio as well. So I, I think she has a lot of insight in that. It just, um, you know, it's, it's a little hard to take, I think, if it's not interspersed with a little... You know, extra bits that you know kind of bring that out. I mean, and I get like you know, we're, we're, she's telling a couple of different narratives. There's the hell school narrative when she's you know brought to there, and you know that just the horribleness with like the one kid she thinks might be her ally turns out to be her, you know, nemesis. Yeah, but, correct. You know, yeah, that turns around pretty quick, and we learn yeah. about that pretty quick. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But, um, but I, I, Hoy, I'm glad you mentioned the Hunger Games and Dying Earth because I was very much feeling like this is the 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 offspring of those two of those two particular mm -hmm. genres and stories but um you know the and also in the hunger games books um i forget the author's name i said i almost said susanna clark but that's that's uh, um jonathan strange mr norrell yeah um who's who who wrote the hunger games well, i'll right up doesn't matter uh it doesn't matter to my point, I guess. But like in the Hunger Games, like it is YA, and they're also taking the trauma of this character very, very seriously. Like what Katniss experiences, like there's big chunks of the books where like she's paralyzed with her own grief and uh, depression over what she's experienced. Um, yeah. And I feel like in, in in a modern story, we can we can use that to still have pretty compelling storytelling. Sure, um, and. But I think with YA, it's very understandable to sort of be a little bit more at that level constantly because when you're a teenager, everything is the most, it's the worst, it's the best, it's whatever. And this, I felt nominally, is for a broader audience than that. And so I was, ho I was hoping for a little bit of um, alleviation of that, you know? And I guess, I can, uh, obviously, you didn't read it the same way. And, and I think the, the rest of you in the book group uh, felt it to more or less a degree than Dan did. I think Dan just it just really hit him over the head with that from, from what his response was, you know? Yeah. And yeah. Um, kind of to what Robert was saying about the apocalypses, it makes me think about how in Buffy the Vampire Slayer, there's a scene where they're trying to figure out what the plural of the word apocalypse is because they've experienced <laughs> so many of them. But I like that in this book, um, we not only have literal apoc apocalypses, but we also have these like personal apocalypses thrown in there too, because there's a moment where, um, I've, it's near the end of the book. I think it's our last chapter when we're specifically with cyanite 
And she's talking about how like the end of the world happened later that day, like the actual end of the world happened later that day. But at this point, we know that we're in the middle timeline. So we know that's not literally true, but she frames it as though it is literally true. And this community that she's belonged to in this, you know, island where she can be herself and she'd been there for two years, like it all came to a very devastating end later that day. Right. I thought that was cool. One thing that bugged me, though, is Rust U. Yeah. And I forget what it is. In, in Battlestar Galactica, they have a similar thing. Does anybody frack. 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 Yeah. Fracking. Yeah, frack. I hate Rust. I hate frack. I hate when yeah. we come up with some cutesy word to replace fuck. Right. Like, and the funny thing is that they actually do drop the F-bomb once in here. They do, yeah. They <laughs> say fuck once or twice. And I'm yeah. just like, uh, yeah, I, I don't like that. That, that, that. that, to me, that doesn't fit my aesthetic. <laughs> Yeah, yeah. Um, go ahead, sorry. Go ahead, Robert. Oh, it, it seemed to me, I didn't like it either, but it did seem to me very sci-fi, kind of pulpy sci-fi. Uh, all these books I read when I was very young where they would replace, there always had to be some kind of slang uh, to replace a common word item type of thing. And it was always obvious what they were referring to, but it made it feel more futuristic or uh fantasy uh so in that sense it seemed in the tradition of but i did think it was annoying yeah for me i i'm i feel like i'm always having to take a beat to translate it I'm like mm. like evil earth okay that probably means fucking hell or goddamn mm. and then then i read on you know but it's always just mm-hmm. it, it's kind of like you're spraddling while you're trying to read through the the paragraph Mm-hmm. And it takes away the emotional intensity of it. Like there are, right. there are moments where in Battlestar Galactica and in the fifth season where we're having these really like emotionally intense moments and somebody's like, rust you, frack off. Yeah. <laughs> and suddenly I'm just taken out of that yeah. moment by yeah. this like silly word that's being used in this very serious moment. Right. The I totally agree. The only defense I would give to that is that they sort of tell you why that rust is such a the, the word is such a you know insult because it can't be relied upon right metal is this amazing thing but it can't be relied upon it rots oh, away yeah. so the acid rains um so it's a little passage i forget which chapter it, you know it, it'll you know with the first acid rain it'll just dissolve you know it's i think when um as soon as talking about the gates of a calm and like why would why would someone put a metal gate on a calm right yeah um and so like rust is like okay it looks strong but it's really of nothing of value you know so yeah i think she was successful in when she used Raga, which is clearly some kind of like racial slur, and we all know what it could mean. Yeah. Um, and every culture has that kind of word. And I thought it was a good way for her to essentially talking about humans and her own ethnic group and words used against them. Yeah. That didn't make me jump every time like the rust you did. Like I felt it was a nice way to actually slip it in right. and talk about it and how it affects people. And so right. on, being on the receiving end of so much racism. Right. And then when one of the, um, they use the reclaim the word Raga as their use name. Yeah. And I, I loved the ex- exploration of the reclamation of these words, you know, as a gay person, like, you know, words like queer and fag, like these are words that like within my own community, like we use in different ways with each other and we've reclaimed them in different ways. Um, but it's still not something that like, I don't want just somebody on the street calling me a fag, but like if I'm at a gay bar with my friends and somebody's like, Hey, move fag. But it's like a friend of mine who I know is just being goofy. And it's like kind of like bumping me in the shoulder at the same time. Like we we can laugh about that. 
And I thought that that was really cool, the way that they were using it in here, where raga is a word that is both, um, if used by a certain person, very scary and very linked with your with your physical safety. Yeah. Um, but <clears throat> also is a word that they use with each other um, to kind of show that like we're our own like kind of special, unique group of people. So I'm wondering, is everybody dark skinned in this world, uh, in this book? Not no, years. no, there are lots of people who yeah. are light skinned. Because yeah. I, I felt I thought they were. <laughs> I just thought they were varying differences of of like uh, brown to darker skin. So well, the ant, the the ant, <laughs> the antarks and they are, are considered white and actually considered kind of weak and undesirable. Okay. Um, okay. The coastals are, I think, the closest to what we would consider African American, but the people mm-hmm. from the Humanities are more somewhere in between, right? Because they have these other traits that don't exist in our current society. This hair that is ash blown, ash blown hair, and they're kind of golden brown. And, and so all these people mm-hmm. in the mid have some racial characteristics of the people from the equatorial belt. So I think they're addressing it, but and they are talking about difference, but they're taking uh you know um the racial difference and pushing it up to this level of the origins and there's no implication that any particular one physical type is more likely to be an origin uh than another right i think that's that's a a discussion and you think even alabaster is like oh they try to breed for us and they don't they have really no idea that it actually work or not because there's otherwise we wouldn't have all these ferals all the time right yeah but i do i do think the jemison kind of takes the assumed paradigm of a story and kind of flips it like in a fantasy book that's you know european in flavor i'll assume everybody is anglo until proven or described otherwise and in this book like robert i was just like okay everybody is african in presentation unless she specifically right and they yeah she specifically mentions her first guardian as as being incredibly pale but with dark hair which indicates that he's some kind of mixed Mm -hmm. race also um yeah, I mean, I, I'm not trying to be super fixated on racial stuff, but I did get the impression, like with all the uh, the tectonics and all that, I I just kind of assumed like whatever was northern European area just dropped into the sea and they're all dead, like Atlantis. And what we have left, the map kind of looks like a crunched up uh, continent of Africa in a way. So. I just kind of went with, okay, we've got some lighter skinned, but everybody's either mixed or, uh, you know, we're just, we're just sort of pushing aside, uh, the white race. We have, uh, kind of like in, in Imaro, we have, this is not about those other people. This is about us kind of thing. So. Well, even the one character who was called out as blonde, who was that little skinny, and they point out like, oh, she would have done better. If she got some Yumeni or Sanzed blood mixed into her, right? The crossbow. Character. Yeah, because she's yeah. tiny, but she does have brown eyes, right? Dark brown eyes, even though she's blonde. Um, so I think you're right. It's talking about this inversion, but not making a huge deal out of it. It's just like, oh, okay, well, let's just not assume. I think her, uh, as um, you were alluding to, Brandon, we're just she's making a point. Let's not assume that this book is everyone's default white. If she didn't mention it, everyone would pick up and assume that everybody was probably default white, right? Um, even even with an African American author, and I know a lot of people were talking back to Hunger Games for a lot of people. Like, there's a lot of people who read it for textual evidence and say Katniss is probably actually Native American the way she's described, but they never actually dis- distinctly call it out, or she at least has Native American descent. And then 
remember when the movie came out, people were just incensed that the uh, certain characters were cast as people of color, even though it was never mentioned whether they were or were not in there. I forget the little girl's name in it, but yeah, uh, Prue, Rue, Rue. Yeah. yeah, she was described as black. That whole right. section of the area was described as black. And then when she was cast black, it was like, why are you casting right. a black girl? Like this? <laughs> right, right. Rue's, yeah, Rue's section was black. And then, <sighs> but yeah, Katniss may or may not have been Native American, right? Which she certainly was, you know, described as having, you know, brownish, uh, reddish skin and dark hair. So, yeah, um, uh, there's a used bookseller that I follow on Instagram and he posted the Earthsea trilogy, some older edition. And I was aghast at <laughs> the illustrations <laughs> on the front. I was like, what? <laughs> How the effrontery, like, what nerve? Yeah. You know, like, oh, no, 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 no. We're just, just going to make him white. Make him white. Yeah. Right, right. And there was a discussion about it. I think the only cover she ever liked until like very recently was that very, very first color cover, which is sort of 60s and it's kind of bronze color. Uh, but even then someone might've just said, oh, it's just yellow. That's the color palette they use. It wasn't, you know, yeah, it was like- the woodblock prints or something. Yeah, woodprint. Yeah, but block print is some sort. Yeah, so. And what I think is cool too with the whole Raga thing is it's it's both a stand-in, at least from my reading of it, was both a stand-in for race, but also a stand-in for um, sexuality or gender stuff because it, it's 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 also something that in addition to people being like Raga's or not human, which is very much a thing that we were doing with African slaves, um, but th- that we also do with the exoti- uh, the exoticized other when we're going to war with them. But also as a Raga or as an origin, you are somebody who you know the truth about you, but you can walk around in society and pretend to be otherwise. So there's that. And that to me is then it ends up becoming a metaphor for queerness. So it also kind of works for both of these things. And I think it explores all of those in a very interesting and compelling way. Mm-hmm. Well, it may not be just queerness, because I remember living in London and people would assume I was British until I opened my mouth. Mm-hmm. And this is at a time when racism against Irish people was pretty prevalent and just accepted in society. Yeah. So it's just being the, the hidden other in plain sight, essentially. Yes, absolutely. And that's really what the whole book is about, right? Is identity. You know, everybody's got two or three identities and they kind of, they're, you know, able to pass from one or the other either as character development or through necessity. Um, yeah. Well, speaking of identity, I, I did want to mention that it took me quite a while to figure out that the different, um, the different timelines were all the same main character. Yeah, that's what yeah. Jeff was talking about. She really doesn't like lay it out until the penultimate chapter. I think, right? Yeah, I think it's hidden on purpose. And part of that second uh, person narrative uh, helps with that. I think that's a part of the reason that she did it. Yeah, I agree. It's the author trying to kind of like hide the hide the shell. <laughs> yeah. The yeah. meta reason for it makes sense, but the in-text reason for it doesn't. And I'm more interested in having an in-text reason for it than a meta reason for it. Mm-hmm. But, you know, they say that like a, a good like twist ending in a movie is when you figure it out at the same time the characters figure it out. And I definitely had a sense that this was going on before it was properly fully laid out. So yeah. in that sense, I think it was semi-successful but um, because I will acknowledge that early on, I was really excited for like, oh, when are like Demaya and Cyanite going to like cross paths? Because we know that they're going to. But then I remember at a certain point being like, oh, they're not going. They're the same person. Like, all, yeah. these are all the same people. 
I think it took longer for the Essun connection. The, the Maya and Cyanide, you can say, okay, well, because they have this thing in, com- in common with the Fulcrum, yeah. you know, and so, okay, that's getting there eventually. Yeah. Um, so with, uh, with the fifth season, obviously the fifth season isn't on the actual Appendix N because this book is much later than the Appendix N was written, but it is in the official fifth edition Appendix E so this is a right. book that we are seeing in kind of these current official places. I'm curious what you guys think about the fifth season being a official Appendix E inclusion for fifth edition Dungeons and Dragons. To you, does, does, that, does that seem like a, a fit? I think it's a great way of saying, like, not every world has to be a medieval sword and sorcery fantasy. And that... Game uh, Dungeon Masters can actually do other things. I know it doesn't necessarily happen that much in Dungeons & Dragons. Like It keeps coming back to this one view of fantasy. But I do like the fact that it could really you know, open people's minds to, like, what if the evil is the Earth itself and it's trying to kill off all of the living organisms? Mm-hmm. And that could be a campaign where you're trying to bring all the groups together to stop this or something. I think it's it's good for that, but I could see how a lot of traditional D&D players would bounce off this going, well, there's no orcs, there's no elves, there's no dragons. There isn't really a zap bang sort of magic, although there kind of is, but it's not really portrayed that way. So I think it's good to shake people up, but I don't know that many people would set a game in this world, though it could be a really interesting world to set in. Mm-hmm. No, I think in terms of also, you know, representation <laughs> and broadening the scope of, uh, you know, what the, de- what the what the game can include, like you said, um, and just kind of as a way of letting people know that this is for everybody. And as for, you know, the majority of the D&D audience, I mean, what don't they bounce off? It's not, uh, you know, it's <laughs> they, they've had their their pass at it. And, you know, they, they, there's plenty for them. So not everything is for everybody. I think um, there's a couple of interesting things. I mean, in the world building, obviously, okay, we can have we still have a non, you know, the stone eaters. So there's a, we still have a non-human race, but we can get rid of dwarves and elves and halflings and all that and still have these races. And we have, by the nature of the Santa society, we actually have classes, right? <laughs> you know, most of the strong racks would be, probably be classified as fighters, right? You know, the innovators, if you have like an artificer class, you know, and then suddenly you have this leadership class and, you know, um, obviously the origins are the, the closest equivalent to whatever kind of magic can and you, maybe you hone your spell list so that all the spells reflect, even though you might still be using the D and D magic system, they all reflect something like an origenic, uh, you know, flavor. And then you have the guardians who are what exactly. Right. And they're, they're connected, right. Cause it seems like they might actually be origins who are somehow modified or, or, or just don't, you know, quite past muster in the traditional sense so that turned into these other things right um so i think you actually have like the idea of like something classes that are not like completely hard-coded the way like say bx is but but you know with dnd um fifth edition has like i think the classes have a little bit more overlap because you can know we have these little lenses and filters that let you do a little extra so mm-hmm. yeah I like that um, it's I wasn't quite sure if this is strictly fantasy and the weird things that are happening are magic or if there's some high, high science involved, because it it could be that this place is the Earth after many millions of years after we're existing right now, or it could be some prehistory 
So are those aliens? Are they, what are they? We don't know what the shards in the sky are. We don't know what that little weird kid is. So uh, that's not explained yet in this first book. And I, I like that kind of uh, expedition to the barrier peaks, uh, peanut butter and chocolate kind of feeling that I got. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Same. I, I, I feel like that worked really well. And it's sounding like in general, the consensus here is perhaps that you could um, set a uh, D&D fifth edition game in a setting like this. Um in the same way that you could have a second edition Dungeons and Advanced Dungeons and Dragons game in Dark Sun, you know, Dark Sun is a very different kind of setting than traditional D anD D, but it still works with the rule set. Um, the guest that we're going to have on is Tanya DePass, who is currently creating the um, fifth season role playing game for Green Ronin. So it'll be interesting to see kind of. Uh, what they're doing with that. But I'm curious if you guys were involved in the game design for a non Dungeons and Dragons game gamifying of this particular setting. I know that we don't have the full pieces of the puzzle yet because we've only read the first book, but are there things that you would want to include and how would you want to go about doing that perhaps? I think a key thing to decide from the start is are all the players origins or are they not origins? Because if there's one origin in the party, they can do so much, and everybody else is basically like their henchmen just trailing around after them. Um, so a bit like Stormbringer, the, the people who can control demons, super powerful, everybody else essentially can't really do much and waits for them to finish fighting the other demons. Which is I think that'll be one thing. question too, like are we all vampires? Are we vampires mm-hmm. and werewolves and mages? Are we just humans? Are we a mix? But those answers really set the tone for what you're playing. Exactly, like how powerful are you setting it? Are you all just ordinary people like the strongbacks and you're uncovering the mystery and then another thing that would be interesting to gamify as well is so every now and then there is these artifacts from a much more civilized time such as the aluminium staircase that she talks about a lot and that'd be a nice element like can you find these artifacts and like use them as high tech as well which could help the if the players are ordinary people to give them some kind of power against the origins of the stone eaters um I think your point is well taken, but on the other hand, we do know that the origins, uh, at least the ferals, you could play it, you know, uh, you know, however many rings is essentially how many levels they have in or origin, originy, right? So the ferals and the one rings and the no rings uh, are easily killed by humans and mobs. And, you know, so, so it could be like, oh, you're from this small calm and one of you may or may not be an origin, but that would be an interesting game to play out. It's like, oh, this is a person who's been your friend all along, but you've been taught, or if a member of your family, you've been taught that origins have monsters, but you know, you're a bunch of kids and you'll, you know, are, are you going to protect each other, you know, and, you know, leave your calm or do those things. Like, so I think it could be done even with a mixed party, um, but being cognizant of like, as the party levels, if it's in a D&D level system, that at some point that's going to break, but that happens in regular D&D too, when the magic user hits 12th level, and the fighters, you know, they're just as a supporting character at that point, unless they have six million magic items also. So well, a good a good start to the campaign could be you could all be children yeah. destined to be the node maintainers and you decide to escape the fulcrum. So you're all the same level and then on the run. So you, yeah. you have potential power in your future, but not right now. Yeah. yeah. I like the academy start that Rick just mentioned. Uh that would be one way I would handle it. And uh maybe 
the thing in the book that would most resemble a typical uh, party of, of characters would be the second person narrative where you've got the, uh, is her name Essen? Essen mm-hmm. is the origine. Uh, you've got uh, the academy, the university uh, woman, Donkey. the stink. Yeah. 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 Who uh, you don't know exactly that she's sort of a professor, uh, wise type of woman at first, and then you've got the strange little boy who who knows what that thing person is. But uh, those three very distinct type of uh, characters, classes, and a party that are uh, going along and having an adventure, basically. So. Right. And having very dangerous random encounters, right? With the, uh, those otter creatures, which are normally friendly. Mm-hmm. And then, you know, I like that inversion too. Like the plants suddenly become roots, like, you know, and then the creatures <laughs> are normally vegetarian, you know, uh, herbivores. And then they become carnivores if they detect enough ash in the air. Um, oh, yeah, that was cool. Yeah. Um, I also feel like uh, Numenera would be a great role oh, yeah, for, sure. for this. I feel like that's a, a, an, of the existing rule sets that I have experience with, I feel like this is the one that would be the easiest to set this particular, um, to, to, to use for this particular setting. Mm-hmm. Right. So, be, sorry, go ahead. So I'm just going to say that I don't think it would be a direct port, but the system that I was thinking of while reading it was, uh, I mean, we, you know, we've got the origins, which are super powerful. And we have this cast system and, She's very interested in, in in magic as a system. You know, it's not just, no, it's magic. It's unexplainable. It's like, it's actually very, very explainable. I kept, was being reminded of like a Star Wars RPG, right? Where you have a, you have a Jedi. Everybody's like the super powerful Jedi class. Um, and you have, you know, it's kind of, there's this one magical force in the universe. And that's kind of what everything coalesces. There's not different schools. There's not, you know, maybe it's, a, maybe it's, you know, nefarious maybe it's astral maybe it's this there's one thing um and then you know various character classes within that um anyway that's what it reminded me of but uh, in terms of uh like a dnd setting the our thing i would steal is the um i like that it wasn't necessarily post-apocalypse and it wasn't necessarily you know a long time ago but it was on the cusp of apocalypse and maybe having a game where your character's actions are going to actually cause the end of the world. <laughs> like that's what you're doing. Like you've got, it's, it's this, it's this thing that you have to do eventually if you want to, I don't know, in this case, break free. But I thought that was a, that was a, that was a uh, perspective that I had never thought of. Before. Yeah. And in some ways, uh, you know how like uh, gamma world and mutant crawl classics, you're basically stone age people in a post-apocalyptic world where in the, we're in the pre-apocalypse it was high it was like high technology this feels like it's kind of the same thing except now the stone age people have now progressed to like medieval times and now that's where the story takes place or like renaissance era almost because there's also like ships and things like that yeah i was wondering gunpowder was going to show up there's um an osr setting from um magical industrial revolution yeah and right and part of that is this ramping up of technology but also the the ramping up towards a potential apocalypse right and, and it's like you know and as jeff as you always like to talk about and uh, citing um you know it could be either way it could be uh and as you're talking brandon it could be either that you are the person who will actually and maybe the player characters don't know this you're either the person who's going to hasten this thing or the person that's going to prevent this thing 
and that that's the main the meaningful choice the players characters have as they get deeper into the experience maybe they're just experiencing the setting and it's weird and it's no big deal it's just fun you know it's regular adventuring but then as they get to fifth sixth level the stakes start becoming more evident in this in this gameplay in this world building and then people then start to decide okay which way are we going with this yeah Another thing I thought was interesting about this book was like Hogwarts as a prison camp. Yeah. Yeah. And I think there's a, that's been a theme that's been coming up again. She may be leading and, and that may be also a natural reaction because like we don't, I mean, we have boarding schools in this country in the States, but we don't think of that as a, a normal state of affairs where it's fairly normal <laughs> over in, you know, uh, you know, in the UK and, and, maybe in other parts of Europe. And it's a whole narrative system that's not really that common in, in you know, American literature. <laughs> so um, so also, if, you're, go if ahead. you're playing a character in the fifth season, uh, who would you want to play and why? And we can pick different versions of the same character, like Demaya, Asun, and Sana. So I would pick uh, Demaya. I kind of resonated with her story the most and would have loved for there to be more of it. And maybe in the subsequent two books there is. But I just found that kind of, as she was exploring the world of the Fulcrum, it was a bit like the Torturer's Apprentice, where like that world was complete. And she was just sort of very inward looking. And, you know, I thought it was just nicely done where she's trying to uncover the the how the fulcrum runs, the various um, Hogwarts type elements where the people are like bitching about each other and like doing things to them so that they look bad in front of the professors and stuff like that. I, I found that part really fascinating. It's hard to um, imagine playing a guardian unless you're really someone who craves to, to be the bad guy, which, you know, that's, that's legit, but maybe that's not for everybody. Um, I think I think a ground level character like Tonky might be like you're surrounded by power, right? You're surrounded by, um, you know, supernatural, possibly you know, science fiction forces, and and the Earth is working against you, and you're you're you know, but you're smart and you're using what you have to kind of navigate your way through. Um, I, I think maybe even you know one of the books from her point of view would be uh, would be an interesting read. I mean, like surrounded by superhumans and yet managing to dance between the raindrops. Right. Um, Robert, you have something? I just have. Uh, uh, I, if I was going to play one of the characters in this book, I'd want to be in on the sexy pirate, pirate. Yeah, sex pirate. Uh, <laughs> that everybody wants to fuck, you know? So, and he just, and he's got a whole ship full of, uh, uh, you know, pirates, scurvy pirates and a whole island that worships him i mean he's he's got everything set up perfectly and uh he's even an orig origin but he's not a really good one but he's even got that too so he's a multi-classer for sure yeah yeah i like the um origin who uh uh she meets in the third timeline uh, who's like got the fancy coat and the like wearing mascara like in the middle of this apocalypse? I, think. <laughs> uh, um, I did want to circle back very briefly though because um, you're talking about the schools and of course I just forgot you know talk, the uh, we know about the Native American schools now and the horror that that was and they just had the report here in the states that was released and Canada had done that recently too so I think obviously people who have been studying this have known about this for longer so I'm sure it was not 
it's not something that NK Jemison, I'm sure NK Jemison was very well versed in these things, but I think as a broader society, we're now becoming aware of this. And so I think that this book continues to have resonance now. I wouldn't call it prophetic. I just think it, it has resonance now, you know, seven years down the road. Uh, oh, yeah. When was this? Was this 2010? I mean, uh, 2015 that it was released. I'm sure it was written earlier, uh, you know, over a period of time. But yeah, you know. it just seems like there's so much in here that we kind of yeah. take it as lingua franca now. But at the time, you no, know, this yeah. is, yeah. Right. Um, and, and Brandon, I think um, it would be, you mentioned the playing the guardians, it would be unpleasant, but it might be interesting to have. Uh, like are we the bad guys campaign like where the guard because you know the guardians and um especially um demaya's initial guard they clearly believe that they're doing good right they're not just like cartoon villains necessarily some of them are but but he's not right and so maybe some junior guardians like no no these people are really dangerous and then they this this but they also love their their origins right or at least he does the one that his demaya so it might be like oh wait we realize that these people are they are you know they are you know people that are, they are people but they're dangerous but how do we reconcile this right i and definitely be, think the guardian would be the player at the table that the dm is texting on the phone messages yeah. about like you know like they've got the dl on yeah. the overall story and yeah. the guardian's going to be the one that kind of maybe scares people right right and so i think if you're doing a guardian game and uh, you know that might be like an uh, apocalypse world with playbooks and, and and so it's not so much focusing on like mechanics of their power but you know a guardian has a playbook that can therefore negate some of the um without having to quantify all the powers like okay i do my negate origin thing and the origin you know so each one has their little their moves i guess is what they call it an apocalypse world right or uh apocalypse world systems yeah um, so um, and it could be that the Guardians, you should play a campaign. It's like you're trying to get all these uncontrolled origins into control because your premise is they're going to end the world. So you think you have this super, like this uber good reason for doing it. And, you know, you have to kill them because they're so powerful, etc. So you could have parallel campaigns potentially where one group is the guardians trying to stop the players because they think they could end the world. Then it's the players who are dicking around and like, they have no idea that they could end the world doing pursuing what they think is a good goal. Yeah. Yeah. So it's time to start sharing our final thoughts about the book. Um, my final thoughts are I would want to play Alabaster because I love playing high level magic mm -hmm. users. And I'm surprised nobody took Alabaster. Yeah. Sorry to interrupt, but just real quick, that was Alabaster in the prologue. He's the one who actually, causes Feels like it right because yeah. he's standing with the stone eater and i presume okay all right i just oh, I, I need to go back and yeah. reread the prologue yeah feels yeah, like yeah. it it's, feels it's, like the it prologue yeah is dense info dump yeah okay okay Sorry, yeah. Jeff, yeah. yeah and the other thing i want to say in my final thoughts are i'm oh i'm loving what you're what you're what you're bringing to the table here with the um with the 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 forced education schools it's also making me think also about how um, some of the stuff that Clive Barker was exploring in that one all boys school story, right, right, with the pigs, yeah, yeah, yeah. As as we're learning more about these institutions in the past, we've especially ones that housed lots of youth, whether they were criminal or were having mental health issues, or if it was just schooling situations. But a lot of them were basically just um, places where there was a lot of sexual abuse happening and a lot of it was very much being, um, um, institutionalized. I'm, yeah, yeah, absolutely. It's institutionalized sexual abuse and physical abuse. 
And I think this is also a really interesting exploration of that. So I think when we get Tanya on, I'll want to chat with her about that. Sure. But, um, but yeah, I, I really enjoyed this book and I personally am interested in continuing on with this series. Um, Robert, what are your final thoughts? Yeah, I would like to continue as well. Hopefully we get a chance to read the further books in the, in the club. Uh, one uh, precursor that uh, nobody else brought up yet. So I wanted to mention that I think Dune would be a good uh, touchstone that came before this. Mm-hmm. in the world building yeah. sense uh but not that it's any the world is nothing like uh arrakis but it's a complete world building concept in the same way that uh herbert did with dune and also i think something that really uh kind of uh brought that home for me was the quotations in every chapter at the in Dune, they're the beginning mm-hmm. of the chapter, but it, in this, they're the end. There's always some uh, bit of in-world lore that's quoted at the end of every chapter, uh, similar to the lore in in the first Dune novel. So, right. And I like that there's citations of the fact that some of this lore was hidden, deliberately hidden, and mm-hmm. so the society is distorted by the fact that a lot of this lore has been hidden and you know kept away. Rick, final thoughts? Um, I liked it, but it wa- did take a while to get into. But now that I've come this far, I definitely want to do the other two books in the trilogy, hopefully through the Appendix and Book Club. Yeah. Brandon, final thoughts? Yeah, I felt a little um, like it was a little bit of a, a lighter lift. Um, like, I don't think I'd take Clark Ashton Smith to the beach, but I might take the second, <laughs> the fifth season to the beach because they, they really are page turners. And I, I had a good time reading. Yeah. yeah. Hoy, final thoughts? Um, no, I think you guys really echoed a lot. It was that initial, I mean, I did the bulk of my reading last night and this morning. I still have a little bit left. And um, and again, it was getting past that initial thing. And hopefully that groove doesn't have to be reworn for the second and third book, because I am interested enough to want to read the second and third book as well and to see where this, where this goes. Because um, I don't imagine a happy ending, but it doesn't just end, right? There's more to say, right? <laughs> right? So the world doesn't just end, right? That doesn't, you know, so. Perfect. And for those who are listening to this in our mainstream, when this is released, these patron book clubs are something you can be a part of if you want to go ahead and join our Patreon at appendixn.com slash, no, that's not right, at patreon.com slash book club. Um, and I do want to say, in case you're a little confused, because this episode is coming out after the episode with our guest, but generally we record them before the episode with the guest. So what you're hearing right now actually happened prior to the recording of the episode you probably heard first. So that's kind of that's that's the way that this is happening. But um, also want to share with you all the books that are going to go up for vote. Our patrons also get to vote on books when um, when we post the polls. So for episode 131, the poll is going to be on 2021 Hugo nominees. So what I'm doing is it's the six Hugo nominees, except if the if the book being nominated is one later in the series, I'm instead nominating the first book in that series for us to read. So it's going to be uh, Arcady Martins, A Memory Called Empire, Becky Chambers, The Long Way to a Small Angry Planet, uh, Rika uh, Aoki's Light, f- uh, Light from Uncommon Stars, uh, P. Jolly Clark's A Master of Jin, Andy Weir's Project Hail Mary, and Shelley Parker Chan's She Who Became the Sun. 
So also instead of our normal four options, we're going to have six options this time. So it'll be interesting to see where that goes. Everybody fight. <laughs> lobby, lobby. Lobby, lobby. <laughs> all right, gang. It's been really fun hanging out with you all this time. Great to see everybody yeah. again. Thanks, guys. Stay on one second. Yeah. All right. Bye, everyone. Yep. Jeff, can stay on one second? Yep.